morning. You know, I want to say, as I do and have done for years each time my class kicks off, I want to say Shabbat Shalom. But Shalom, in many ways, since the events of 7 October, have seemed more like a memory or or perhaps maybe something, uh, a hope for which all decent human, humans long, the idea of shalom. So I do wish Shabbat shalom, but whenever I think of peace, I think of something more evident than what the world sees at this moment. Peace, shalom, wholeness, at least in part, The word shalom, the idea of peace, the idea of shalom in Hebrew, at least in part, is the opposite of war. I want you to go with me this morning as we begin to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, and I want to go to chapter 3, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And we all know in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that beginning in verse 1 and through verse 8, we have sort of a poem, uh, and, and it begins like this. It says in English, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. And then, uh, so what we get is zaman va'et, zaman, a season and a time. It's actually a beautiful poem. Most people in our culture know it, even people who aren't religious because it's made into a very popular song in, I guess, in the 60s. But, but if you look down at, at verse 8, because between verse 1 and verse 8, we have a whole list of human activities contrasted one with its opposite, I guess you could say, Uh, juxtaposed side by side. There is a a time to be born, a time to die, and so forth. But when you get to verse 8, the final stanza in the poem, if you will, um, it says, um, uh, a time, uh, the, the last part of it, it says a time to love, a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. So it's these two final contrasting pictures that I want to focus on in this particular teaching. There is a time, there is a time of war. There is a time of peace. In Hebrew, et milkama, veit shalom, et milkama, veit shalom a time of war, and a time of peace. Yes, they're both mentioned side by side. The last word of this beautiful poem is peace. It's as if, especially relevant today, the crowning achievement of all of human activities, the thing for which everything winds through life, is peace. War and peace. The biblical text, the Tanakh, um, 929 chapters. 
There's quite a bit to say about both of these, about war and about peace. Of course, of course the goal is peace. We all know that. The end game is peace. It's the thing for which humanity longs. It's the ideal. It's the beautiful. It's the picture that is always on the lips and the hand, the pen of the, the, the prophets. It's the vision for which they long. And it's described in various ways throughout the prophets. There is one picture, <clears throat> one prophetic picture that I'm especially interested in today. And I taught on it a few weeks ago in a class. It's a glimpse, I guess you could say, of a perfected world, a world which is, has achieved this perfected ideal. And it not only comes to and through one prophet, but it comes through two prophets. And these two prophets are contemporary prophets. They both are uh, receiving messages from God at the same time. The two prophets are Isaiah and Micah. Isaiah and Micah. And recently, as I said, I taught a class uh, the name of that class, it's on our YouTube channel. It's called Prophetic Parallels. And in that class, I put those two prophecies side by side. The prophecy from Isaiah chapter 2 and Micah chapter 4. And this is where I want to focus. I want to read to you this morning from one particular piece of that vision found in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4 and Micah chapter 4 verse 3 as you see on the screen. Then they, the English says, shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Think about the wonderful old spiritual hymn. Ain't going to learn war no more, no more. This description of a time of peace is one that should give us pause. We should, in every way that we can, make an effort in some way from our little place of the world to bring this reality to pass to plant this vision of heaven on earth. That is such a beautiful passage. I especially love how both of these prophets operating at the same time, in the same place, receive the same vision from God. I can almost imagine that at this time, that throughout the streets of Jerusalem, throughout as even in the, the, the towns surrounding Jerusalem, that people begin to say this, that one day swords will be beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. It is such a beautiful image. These two visions in Isaiah and Micah are almost identical all the way through, almost, not quite. There are differences, but for that you you can look at the other 
class that we taught and, and published not too long ago. But the words swords, plowshares, spears, and pruning hooks appear in one other passage. And that other passage that contains all of those words is the prophet Joel. I want you to go with me to Joel chapter 3 and verse 10 uh, in the English. In the Hebrew, it's chapter 4 and verse 10. But let me tell you something about Joel. The thing about the prophet Joel is that most scholars, I would say all scholars, don't know, don't know when you put it. They don't, they don't, they can't put it historically, contextually. I've read early where some put it early, some put it late. Most scholars, and this is the case in almost everything among the academics of our time and day, is that they push later and later and later to the Persian period maybe. But here's the deal. No one knows, mainly because it doesn't tell us. We don't even have a starting point where even a fundamentalist could claim, ah, here it is. It's in this day. It's in this king's time. There's nothing for a scholar to even argue about to give a, a late date. But a late date is what's given nonetheless. And that's mainly because there are no clues. There's nothing that's quite so obvious, but there is something. There are things throughout the book of Joel. In Joel, we know that the temple is still standing. How do we know that? Because we, if we read the text, it clearly is a time before the destruction of the temple. So that gives me some clues. And there are other clues, but we're not going to do a full study of Joel today. Uh, but just I just wanted to plant that seed. As you read, look for clues. But here's what I want to focus on this morning. In verse 10 of chapter 4 in the Hebrew, verse 10 of chapter 3 in the English, it says, Beat your plowshares into swords. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Beat your plowshares into swords, your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Now, the interesting thing about this passage is it gives the exact opposite of what we read in Isaiah chapter 2 and Micah chapter 4. To me, it makes me wonder if at the time, if at the time when the message is being talked about by Isaiah and Micah as the Assyrian armies uh, surround the area, it makes me wonder if this idea that they are presenting is something far into the future. And it takes Joel. Now, Joel, think about Joel. When you read Joel, it seems more immediate. The war, sound the alarm, put the shofar to the lips. It's more immediate. Joel is a very interesting book, and I think we ought to read, we ought to read that book with fresh eyes, particularly as we stand now, because indeed, indeed, one day, one day, please God, the implements of war 
will be converted into farming tools. Can you imagine where you can't, you couldn't find a weapon if you wanted to? The only thing that's being sold, the only thing that people can get with their money are tools that are used to grow, to bring life, and to sustain life. That will be a beautiful time of peace. But ladies and gentlemen, friends, this is not that time. This is not the time to convert farming implements or, or to convert weapons into farming implements. This is not the time to put down weapons. This is not the time to think about peace. This is a time of war. In the Bible, the Bible is filled with stories of war and warfare. And what else would we expect if the Bible represents sections, pictures, stories of time from ancient, ancient days unto the modern? Because history itself, history itself is replete with stories of war. It would appear that times of peace, times of peace, and we've had times of peace. We've had long times of peace, extended times of peace in various places of the world. But these beautiful, restful times of peace are far too often interrupted with a call to war. The biblical records in Genesis chapter 14 has a story about kings battling one with the other. Uh, and Abram, the ancestor of uh, the Jewish people, the ancestor of Israel, is pulled into a regional conflict. Now shortly, this happens shortly after he's moved into the neighborhood. Invaders take his family members, and they go a long way off, and they hide these family members who've been taking, uh, taken hostage. Uh, verse 15, we're going to read this in just a moment. Verse 15 of this story has, albeit in just a few words, a record of the father of the faithful's nighttime raid to retrieve those innocent non-combatants that were taken uh, by his wicked neighbors. Genesis chapter 14 Let's go there, Genesis 14, and begin in verse 14. It says, And when Avram, when Avram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hovah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and he also brought again his brother Lot and his goods, and the women also, and the people. I want to talk about this for just a minute. Avram is not known um, as being a warlord. 
If we read the story of Avram, we only meet Avram at the end of chapter 11 in Genesis. And then in chapter 12, we see Avram going with family members on a peaceful journey out of Ur of the Chaldees, as it says five times in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, he goes on the journey, stays sometime in Haran, and then comes into the land of Canaan. But we don't picture Avram as a warrior. But what happens with Avram is seemingly, while living a life of peace, his neighbors attack and take captive non-combatants of his own family. It includes not just his family, not just lineal descendants, not literal uh, descendants in 14. In fact, if you know the story and the progression of the story, he has no children of his own. But it's Lot and his fits, his extended family, and apparently others too. Notice it says that he goes and he, he arms a group uh, his trained people, he goes to get them back all the way in the north. Look at a map where it describes it in the Hebrew Bible. And he, he makes battle and he brings back not only his family, his brother, Lot, uh, but it says the women, plural, whoever that is, and the people. Now, I can't help but think about What's going on today? We have more than 240 captives who've been taken by the enemy and they are holding them hostage, prisoner, captive, non-combatants. And this particular story reminds me of that same effort that Avram, in modern times, the Jewish state is going to get back. They're making an effort to go get back from the enemy, not only their own brothers and sisters, but the women and Ha'am and the people from all the other countries who were also caught up in this uh, vicious, um, non-human-like behavior, this savage behavior of those in Gaza. Now, per the narrative, according to the Eloist document in the Pentateuch, the father of the faithful, Avram, um, not only was he at times a fighter, but so was Jacob. Jacob the father of the nation, also known as Israel. We'll talk about that in a moment. Israel gets his name, as we read in the narrative, because he fought, he strove with God and with man. Look with me at Genesis 32, Genesis 32 and verse 29. Genesis 32 and verse 29 this is one of the stories. There are two in the Pentateuch, different accounts by different sources, which give the naming of Israel from Jacob to Israel. We get two accounts. This one in verse 29 says, um, uh, let's go back to verse 28. And he said, 
your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. Now, in, uh, in the Hebrew, it's, uh, it's verse 29. The idea, though, the idea in Genesis 32, 29, is that, that Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Remember the story says that he fought there in this particular story with a man until the break of day. But if we read in Hosea chapter 12, it tells us that that's not really a man. Who is it? Well, he strove with God or with a messenger of God. Now, <clears throat> but not only here, we also have another account in Genesis where Jacob fought. We, we get the idea that Jacob fought even in the womb. Look with me at Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse 22. Genesis 25 and verse 22. And it says, um, the children struggled together within her. This is Rivka, Rebecca. And she said, if it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord, of yod And Jehovah said unto her, Two nations are in your womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from your bowels. The one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Represented in the womb of Rivka, a struggle. A, a war between, it's, it's babies literally, but it's not described that way in a prophetic sense. It's not just babies or even men, but the war going on in the womb of Rivka is nations are fighting. Two manner of peoples, two manner of peoples. Now, but it's not only Avram, it's not only Jacob who are warriors when the need arises, but so too is the God of the Bible. So too is Jehovah. In what scholars believe is one of the earliest texts in the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, in Exodus chapter 15, we get a glimpse of this. Go with me to Exodus 15. We're just going to read verses 1 through 3, Exodus 15, beginning in verse 1. Uh, and then Moses sang. Uh, and, and by the way, you can look this up, do a study on the Hebrew grammar here. Some have proposed that it's really the, a future. In, in a sense, it's saying, then Moses and the children of Israel will sing this song unto the Lord. Make of that what you may. And spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has he thrown into the sea. The Lord, Jehovah, is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him a habitation my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Jehovah is a man of war. Jehovah 
is his name. And it goes on to describe how the Pharaoh's chariots are cast into the sea because Jehovah is a man of war. And Ish, interestingly enough, this very passage says that Jehovah is Ish Milkamah, Ish Milkamah, a man of war. Jehovah is his name. Very strong passage. Um, now, but this image occurs elsewhere. Look in the psalm. We, we can see it in Psalm 24 and verse 8. I want to look at one psalm, one verse, just because this says something of the same thing. Psalm 24 and uh, verse 8. Who is this king of glory? Jehovah strong and mighty, Jehovah mighty in battle. Jehovah gibor milkamah, Jehovah gibor milkamah, Jehovah mighty in battle. Many, many texts of this type throughout the Hebrew scriptures. It is this battle God, Jehovah, Huha Elohim, Jehovah, he is God. It is this battle God that fights for Israel. Let's go back to Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter 14. I want to hit a few passages which describe the battle God. In verse 14 of Exodus 14, it says, Jehovah will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. So the idea here is let God handle it. Exodus 14, 14. Now look down at verse 25, Exodus 14 and verse 25 says, and uh, this is talking about God's action here, and took off their chariot wheels and they drave them heavily so that the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel for Jehovah fights for them against the Egyptians. The idea conveyed in this poetic uh, story here is that the Egyptians are shaking and quivering in their boots because a warrior god has come in and fought against their enemies. This is a common motif in the ancient world, but even so in the Hebrew Bible. Now stick with me on this. Go with me now to the book of Deuteronomy, Devarim chapter 1. I want to look at verse 30. Deuteronomy 1 and verse 30. And it says, Jehovah your God which goes before you, he will fight for you according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. So Jehovah, this is the idea, Jehovah who goes before you, he's going to fight for you. Now look down at chapter 3, Deuteronomy chapter 3. I just want to go through a couple of these. You see them on your screen. Uh, verse 22, don't fear them, meaning the enemy, for Jehovah your God, he shall fight for you. And then one more, I want you to go to Deuteronomy 20. Now, in your spare time, I won't go into it today, I want you to read Deuteronomy 20, because Deuteronomy 20 is basically a list of rules of war. This is what guides the ancient Hebrews in their battles. And by the way, you can, you can find some of these very similar uh, tactics being used today. How many of these, like I've seen several videos recently with the ongoing uh, war going with Gaza, where commanders 
sort of like chaplains are coming out and they're saying, uh, Shema Yisrael, and they're singing and their shofar is blasting, uh, and, and they've announced peace already. So Deuteronomy chapter 20, I want you to go with me to verse 4. For Jehovah your God, he goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Now, if you read through the books of Joshua and Judges, Joshua and Judges, you will see over and over the idea of warfare according to the biblical writers. Now, look, academics question this whole idea, whether or not this is literal, whether these events happen. What I'm suggesting to you is that the Bible is filled with stories of battles that take place between the children of Israel and between their enemies. Let me tell you this, it goes back more ancient than the Bible. If you look at the biblical writers, did you know that the biblical writers writing in ancient times refer to more ancient works earlier than the time of the Bible, which also describe war? Go with me to the book of Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21, and I want you to go to verse 14. Numbers 21, 14. Wherefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, what he did in the Red Sea and in the brooks of Arnon and at the stream of the brook that goes down to the dwelling of Ar and lies upon the borders of Moab. And it goes on and it describes various things. This idea, this statement, the reason I wanted to pull this in is because Numbers 21, 14, the writer, traditionally Moses, but if you read it, there are other reasons to think someone else wrote this. But the idea is that whoever is writing this is describing a more ancient work called the Safer, the Scroll of the Wars of Jehovah the safer of the wars of Jehovah. Now, there's another ancient book, another ancient scroll that we no longer have. It too, interestingly enough, refers to wars. Now, some of you have heard the name of this book and you, you have even sought to find it. We don't have copies, uh, even though you might be able to find something called by this name on Amazon. It's not the actual book that is lost to history. It's called the Book of Jasher. We have two texts. We have two texts. One is Joshua. One is from Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10. I want you to go to verse 13. This is about the Book of Jasher. Uh, we have two texts surviving from antiquity, both of which describe warfare. So look at this. Chapter 10, verse 13, Joshua, and the sun stood still and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. It is not, is it not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. There was no day like that before it or after it, that the Lord, Jehovah, hearkened unto the voice of a man, for, get this, Jehovah fought for Israel. Now, did the sun stand still? People often, I've read reports over and over where people say, hey, we even found uh, evidence in 
that the sun actually stood still. You know, the fundamentalist in people really wants to, this is poetry. It's powerful imagery, though. It's describing a day of battle. Imagine that it's so long that the people are sweating and there's blood and there's death. And, but, but it's like the commander said, let this day continue. And the swords are clashing. The image is what the writer wants you to see. That this day is long. It's the longest day. And it's the only time, according to the writer, that God listened to the voice of a man and changed the, uh, the length of a day, right? This is in the book of Jeshur. In Hebrew, Yeshar, it means upright, the book of the upright, and it's talking about war. Look down at verse, look down at verse 42 uh, of Joshua 10, verse 42. Notice it says something similar, uh, chapter 10, verse 42, and all these kings... And their land did Joshua take at one time because Jehovah, God of Israel, fought for Israel. And Joshua returned and all Israel with him unto the camp of Gilgal. So the idea here, the idea here is that uh, God is fighting on behalf of the children of Israel. Let's pick up one more passage that deals with the book of Jasher. And I want you to go to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, verse 18, 2 Samuel 1, 18. And it says, uh, And he bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. So here's the idea. I, I Thanks to Dave and Patty Tyler, I was sent as a consultant with their company their company does a lot of work to benefit the people of Israel, uh, and I, I know that they're on, so thank you for all you do, Tylers. But listen to this. Uh, I was sent to this school in the heartland, the biblical heartland, where I was uh, able to receive some training on counterterrorism uh, by these uh, Jewish warriors, these special force, special operations soldiers. And uh, the colonel there, Colonel Gott, you can follow this Facebook page that they have. It's called Caliber 3. They're, they're warriors for the innocent uh, lives in this region. And he describes his area where he's at as a very tough neighborhood, right? So uh, Colonel Gatt is telling the story, and he says uh, in Hebrew on the wall, he asked me, he said, do you know what that says? And I recognized that it's the quote in Hebrew from 2 Samuel 1.18, teach the children of Israel, Judah, teach the children of Judah how to use the bow. In other words, he said, this is my mission in life, is to train the Jews how to fight, not to pick a fight, not to be offensive in their war, but how do you survive in a tough neighborhood? Well, by God, you teach them how to fight, and that's exactly what he does. So, kol hakavod to my friend, Colonel Gott. Go follow his Facebook page. David is a great example. David, King David, is a great example of a warrior, as we all know. His story begins for us, his story begins for us in first uh in in first uh, Samuel chapter 17. In first Samuel chapter 17, 
we get the story of the famous battle with Goliath, with Goliath. I want you to look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'm not going to read the entire story, although I always am inclined to do that when I get to this passage. But let's begin in verse 23. Um, And he, as he talked with them, this is David. Remember, his dad sends him, go check on your brothers. He shows up, and the big brothers, uh, as is typical, uh, don't like the idea that their younger brother is there, you know. So here's what happens, verse 23. As he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath. Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words. And David heard him. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel is he come up. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter, make his father's house free in Israel." And David spake to the men that spoke by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Because who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And then the story goes on. They say, well, here's what the the king has said, that if you kill this giant, whoever kills him gets this award and so forth. Now go down to verse 42. chapter 17, verse 42, I'll pick up there. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. So he sees this kid walking towards him. He's this big, bad, giant uh, fighter. He's but a kid, ruddy, redheaded. He's a redheaded kid, fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that you come out to me with a stick? The Philistine cursed David by his gods. Philistine said to David, come to me and I'll give your flesh to the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the earth. David said to the Philistine, I love this, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to you in the name of Jehovah of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day will Jehovah deliver you into my hand and I will smite you will take your head from you, and I'll give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that Jehovah saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is Jehovah's, and he'll give you into our hands. We get two pictures here. He's got weapons and he's going to kill him, literally kill him, according to the narrative. But notice he, he says everyone's going to know that God doesn't save with sword and spear. Remember, he says, I'm coming to you with the Holy Spirit and so forth. But he's also got a rock loaded in a slingshot. So we're going to make a point of this. Now look down at verse 48. Uh, verse 48, and it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag. By the way, you go on a tour with me. I'm going to bring you to this place, let you throw rocks. Uh, Took a stone and slung it and hit the Philistine in the forehead, and the stone sunk into his forehead, and he fell upon his face to the earth. That means he's running towards David, 
when he, when he gets his rock in his head, the momentum, he just falls forward. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. So David ran, took up the Philistine, stood on him, took his sword, drew it out of the sheath thereof, and slew him and cut off his head therewith. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines until you come to the valley to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistine fell down by the way, etc., etc. Let me tell you something. War is not pretty. War is bloody. War is bad, and war is at times necessary. Peaceniks around the world are out in the streets marching, purple-dyed hair, chanting against Israel for standing up to defend its people, matching force for force. And people say, it's, it's not fair. Israel has better weaponry. Well, be careful who you pick on is the message there. War is not pretty. David, we think of David as the sweet psalmist. Hallelujah. I love some psalms. But he's also a warrior. He also has a sword, and he also is not going to allow the people of Israel to live in fear and to shake in their tents because they're being harassed by a savage enemy. And I think that is the message of David. Look, the Bible looks forward. The Bible looks forward and encourages us to look forward also to a universal peace, to a time of tranquility. But the Bible does not shy away. The Bible doesn't shy away or apologizing in its description that there will be fights along the way to that perfect day. There will be wars. There will be wars and wars and wars. We have one enemy that is described as an eternal, eternal war, a war with Amalek. Amalek is the arch enemy. Jonah and I did a show on this recently. Amalek is the arch enemy of Israel and of God, I might add. What makes Amalek so bad? I can tell you this. Not only will God destroy the Amalek of the past, but the Amalek of the future. Remember, don't forget this. Exodus 17 is one story that's described in uh, the, the Hebrew Bible about Amalek. And in Exodus 17, verse 16, there is a phrase you need to know in Hebrew. Kiyad al ya milkama, the Yehovah Amalek midordor. Because a hand is against the throne of Yah, war to Jehovah with Amalek from a generation of a generation. Now, that's strange. Who is Amalek? Who is this Amalek who is, has his hand 
upon the throne of Yah. And what does that even mean? What does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means that there is a beautiful concept. There is a beautiful thing for which this world strives, even though it knows it not. And that is the manifestation of the kingdom of Jehovah on earth. But there's a hand that has seized that throne. There is a hand against God's throne. There is a hand that seeks to usurp and destroy the kingdom of God. This is about as spiritual as I get, but it is a message you need to hear. The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence throughout the ages. And it's caused by, if you will, a spirit of Amalek. This Amalek might be called Hitler. It might be called Nasrallah. It might be called Mahmoud Abinad, you know, whoever. It could be any number of people who hate not only do they hate the Jewish people, you ever wonder, I, people ask me all the time, why is it that so many people don't like the Jews? First of all, the question's not right. question is, why does almost everybody, why is the European Union so much against Israel? Why is the United Nations so damn bad at putting out things against the Jewish state why is all of that? It's because there is a, an evil hatred, not only of the Jewish people, but of the God behind the Jewish people. There is a hatred for the kingdom of God, and there is an attempt to stop the manifestation of that kingdom on this planet. That's the hand against the throne. But you, it says, there's another passage. Go with me to Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25, and let's go to verse 17. Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. Let's talk about Amalek. Remember what Amalek did unto you, by the way, when you were come forth out of Egypt, how he met you, by the way, and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee when you were faint and weary and he feared not God. Therefore it shall be when Jehovah your God's given you rest from all your enemies round about in the land which the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance to possess it, you shall blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget it. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you this. Israel has to utterly blot out all of those who seek to destroy them. They can't, they can't be affected. They can't be deterred. They can't be soothed into delaying more and more and more. They cannot but totally annihilate the enemies that have come against their people. So get ready. Look, you've got to be strong. War is not pretty. But it should be a message. The end result should warn all future neighbors and enemies, you don't want to do that. This is a command. 
Deuteronomy 25, verse 17 through 19. Remember Amalek. Remember what it did. Remember what Amalek did? It came in, it crossed the border, and it attacked kids at a peace rally. Remember what Amalek did. Remember what Amalek did when it broke into homes and murdered and decapitated and burned alive and cut pregnant women open, shot their babies. Remember what Amalek did. This is not a time of peace. This is a time of war. War is not pretty. That's what the enemy did. What do you do to an enemy like that? You don't discuss ceasefire. Not until you are out of ammunition. And then you look for ways to replenish. This enemy must be utterly destroyed forever and always. You, this Israel ought to keep shooting until people no longer even know the word Hamas. The enemies have once again declared war on Israel. But the true war, the true war has been declared on the manifestation of God's kingdom. You see, the, the hand is against the throne of Yah. And because the hand is against the throne, there will be war between Jehovah and Amalek from a generation of a generation. There's a time for peace. And that kingdom is a peaceful kingdom. And that kingdom is coming. But so long as there is a hand that comes against that throne, that attacks the weak and feeble, that murders and butchers and rapes. You can't have that kingdom. It is the responsibility of those who champion the cause of that kingdom to utterly blot out all who oppose that kingdom. I pray, and I ask you to pray, that God will arise and his enemies be scattered. A couple more verses. Let's look at a, a little bit more on this throne. Let's go to Exodus chapter 15. I want to talk to you about this throne, this ancient kingdom that was spoken of all the way back in the Pentateuch. Exodus 15 verse 14. People shall hear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold on the inhabitants of Palestina. Then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed, the mighty men of Moab. Trembling shall take hold upon them. All the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. Fear and dread shall fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm, they shall be as still as a stone till your people pass over, Jehovah, till the people pass over which you have purchased. You shall bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance in the place, O Jehovah, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. 
Jehovah shall reign forever and ever. The passage speaks of the kingdom of God. God, Jehovah, will reign forever and ever. ever. But what precedes the reign of God? What precedes the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth? What precedes that? Fear in all those who were the enemies. Fear shall take over the inhabitants of Palestina. Huh. Think of that how you may. Look at Deuteronomy. Let's look at some passages from Deuteronomy. I'll go through these fairly quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 25. Chapter 2 of Deuteronomy, verse 25. This day will I begin to put the dread of you and the fear of you upon the nations that are under the whole heaven, who shall hear a report of thee and shall tremble and be in anguish because of thee. Look at chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11. In verse 25, there shall no man be able to stand before you, for the Lord your God shall lay the fear of you and the dread of you upon all the land that you shall tread upon as he had said unto you. One more, Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 28 and verse 10. And all the people of the earth shall see that you're called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. Let me tell you what this world needs. The world needs to be a little bit afraid of the Jewish state. All the neighbors need to not be able to stand against the Jewish state. Now, I've made this clear time and again. Let me say it again. I do not think that the current secular state of Israel is perfect in everything. That's not my intention. Nor do I think that the Jewish state of today, the politics as screwed up as they are in our country, well, maybe not anything is that screwed up, but it is close. The point being that to stand for justice and righteousness in a democratic way is a great first step when other countries take violators of Sharia law and throw them off of buildings or hang them. People who criticize Israel, think about it. When you look around, it is a beacon of light in a world of darkness. There are other passages uh, that I could go to. Let me just say this. One day, one day, peace will come. There is a time of peace. But that day is not today. It's not today. There's a time for peace and a time for war. Now is a time for peace. See, they, the enemies, rejected peace. Peace, people want to know what a ceasefire looks like. I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like the 6th of October, 2023. There was a ceasefire in place until savages broke in and took advantage of innocent non-combatants. And then I say, bring the 
fury of hell. Because you can't do that and then march in the streets and say, oh, wait, we want to we wanna cease fire. I bet you do. Look, peace was rejected. So here's where we're at. Go with me to Psalm 68. Psalm 68. The whole psalm is beautiful, but let me just read the first three verses. Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yea, let them exceedingly rejoice. Read the whole psalm as you have time. And I can say Shabbat Shalom because peace is coming. It's not here yet. It's not a time for peace, but a time for war. Now, one thing I want you to do, uh, we have begun to use our Discord server, UIW's Discord server. And we have to because last week, some of you know, uh, our Zoom was attacked. Evidently, not everyone agrees with me. You would, I don't know why. But because of that, uh, we're using Discord, which is much more of a safe platform uh, so that we can keep things out. So if you're already in the Discord, there is a link. Hopefully it, you, you can join. But look, I don't, I'm not going to cry a lot if you can't make it today uh, unless you're new. I feel for you there. But if you're not new to United Israel, you should already be already in there because we've been doing this for months. So if you miss it, I'm sorry. You'll be ready next week. Shabbat Shalom, Shavua Tov. Take about 15 minutes. I'll see you at 11.45 in the Discord. Thanks for joining me.